All right. James 1. There should be some Bibles next to you, or you can swipe open your phone. James 1. We're in verses 14 through 18 today. And we're in this series in James. And we've been walking through. We're in week six, I believe. And the series is called The Awakening. And here's what James has been teaching us. He's been saying, hey, you're going to have trials in your life. And those trials will lead in two places. It will either lead to your transformation or your doom. It will either, this trial will come upon you and it will make you or break you. And what he says is in the very beginning, he says, look, trials are coming. Count it as joy when they come. And if you will count it as joy, if you will see that these trials will lead to your transformation, you'll be able to have joy, joy when they come. Because you so badly want to be transformed. But if you don't see it as joy or if you don't even care to be transformed, well, it's going to lead to your doom. And so what we saw last week, and it was just such an epiphany for me last week. So last week we said one trial will come. And that trial that comes will morph into one of two things. So the same trial, it will either morph into a temptation that will take you down this road of sin and eventually will lead to your death. Or this same trial will come and it will morph into a test. And that test, when you pass it, will lead to your transformation. So this is like blew my mind when, when we talked about this last week. And so all last week, I, this week I've been saying, all right, temptation comes. All right, I've got to reset the way I'm thinking. So my mindset changes and I say, this is not a temptation. I'm going to make this a test. And when it's a test that I pass, I will be transformed by it. But very quickly, I realized this is actually a lot more difficult than you realize. Because I realized I don't actually care that much about my transformation. Like I thought I did. But I saw that there is a desire in me to just run into the temptation. So, so desires are stronger than we think. And today what we're going to learn is how to fight against that how to fight against the sin and death and these temptations that come. And God gives us something to fight against it with. He gives us this special elixir that fights against death, that reverses death. But we've got a drink of this elixir that he gives us. And, and here's the thing. Each day we don't drink of this elixir, we die a little bit that day. And then a week goes by. And then a month. And then years go by, and then we end up at the end of our life down in this abyss of death that has finally taken over us. All because we wouldn't drink down this elixir. And here's the thing, you guys have this in your house. And it's probably collecting a whole bunch of dust. And what you got to do is you got to open up the, the cap, and you got to drink it down. So that reverse, death will be reversed. So here's our verses. James 1, 14 through 18. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth, and by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, for thousands of years, various cultures are conjuring up these images that personify death. 
And a very common image that we have is the Grim Reaper. So the Grim Reaper is this skeletal figure that is shrouded with a hood and in, in this black-like thing that he's wearing. And he's got this stick, and at the end of it, it's got something very sharp that's meant to cut. It's called a, well, I, I keep messing up the name, the name. What is the name? Do you guys know? There you go. You, I think you messed it up too, but. Uh, so, do you know where this image first showed up? During a plague, actually. It was in Europe in the 14th century, and in this black death, the black death plague uh, is where this image of the Grim Reaper first showed up. And, and it's, it's interesting, about one-third of Europe's population was wiped out from this thing. And so it's in this environment that we start seeing this image of death that starts showing itself. And last week we said, okay, death, here's what you think of it as. It's like these waters that are raging. These floodwaters that are going to come after you, except by the only, the only reason that you are sitting here today is by the mere pleasure of God that is holding death off of you. So if we're thinking of, and, and each sin, each ill thought that you have about God, each rebellion against God, each rebellion against something that is good that he's created that you have twisted every time that happens, it's like the waters start building greater and greater and more water is added into this flood until at some point God's hand is removed. But when we think of death as the grim reaper, God is holding his, this creature back from you. But it's snarling at you and it's stalking you and it's watching you, and, well, he's studying you because he wants you, and he knows your desires, and he's scheming, he's very cunning, and he's watching you, and he's found your weak spot, he's found the sickness that is in your heart, and the darkness that has come into your soul, and he's about to exploit it, and here's what he does. Our verse says that Luring and enticing. Now, these are fishing terms. So, so what we have here is this image of a grim reaper who wants you bad. But he's being held back by God. And so what does he do? Well, he goes fishing for you. And he casts out a lure. And he's made a lure such a way that it's the perfect one that entices you the most. He knows you well. He's been watching you. And he's shaped this lure perfectly. And he throws it out there and you see it. And the desires in you want it. But you say, no, this would not be good for me. This is not what God wants. This isn't good, but it kind of, maybe it is good. Maybe it feels good. And now you start switching, you start changing, and you start wanting it. And you say, no. And there's this fight that starts battling and raging on with you. And, and this grim reaper, this death is a good fisherman. And so he starts moving around the lure in such a way that you go wild for it. And you can't stop yourself, and you take the bait. And as soon as you take the bait... James changes the imagery from fishing to you. It's pretty graphic. He basically tells you you have now become impregnated. Like you have been impregnated by the spawn of this grim reaper. It's pretty graphic. And, uh, and some people said that it was a bit graphic last week. And this week I'm going to make it a bit worse. So here's what happens. James says there's a desire in you. And this desire in you is like an egg. And the lure is like the male seed. And you become, when the desire and this lure meet, you become impregnated. And that is temptation. 
So I'm giving you this anatomy lesson of spirituality and how it works. So, so because this grim reaper can't get to you, throws out the, the lure, it, it meets your desire, and then you become impregnated with this temptation, and then it gives time, it's time to, to push. And out you push this spawn that's this child of sin. And it's there. It's what you've given birth to. And, and well, this is a pretty ugly child, but not to you. In fact, you care very well for this child. You hold on to it very tightly, the same way you hold on very tightly to your sin. And, well, when life gets hard, you go running to this child because this child is comforting you. You hold it all the more. And, well, you rock it, you feed it, you nurse it at your breast, and all kinds of waste comes out of this child into your life. But you think you've hidden this waste pretty good, but the waste in the house of your life is smelling pretty bad and you continue to care for this child of sin and death you feed it all its life and it gets stronger and it's growing and then it reaches maturity and at the end of this maturity in the middle of the night it stands before you as you sleep takes out its what's it called its blade and reaps your soul as you sleep and that is how eternal death will sneak up on you. You see what's happened is this, this death couldn't get to you. And so the death, death figured out a way for you to give birth to the spawn that will eventually become your own little grim reaper. And see, this isn't, this isn't the work of Satan. This is the work of you. You have done this. You've worked really hard at it. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? So each day, you kill yourself a bit. The sin that keeps growing is eventually going to reach maturity. And it will slice you up. So you're flying down the road, unable to stop yourself. And eventually, well, you've ran yourself into death. And you did it. And you can tell yourself this all you want. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. And you make every effort you can. You wake up in the morning and you do pretty good for about an hour. And then you see... Man, I didn't even notice all the sins that I was doing, and look at all the things that I've done now after an hour in. There's a lot of things you can do in life, but one thing you can't do is stop sinning. So you keep feeding this sin, and the locomotive of your sin is fed by the coal of your desire, and at some point you have just driven right into the pits of hell. So last week we showed how death is coming for you, but this week we see that we run right into death. And death welcomes us with open arms. And when I say death, I'm not talking about a physical death, though I am talking about that, but something far worse. It's an eternal spiritual death, and we don't like talking about these things very much. The problem is that the Bible keeps annoying us and keeps us reminding us that this is very real. And so... Despite what our culture is teaching us, and despite how much our culture is trying to minimize the reality of death, the Bible fills its pages with this reality. And for some reason, the truth of this eternal death is pretty absent from pulpits. And that could be death's greatest trick. So reality TV shows are a new thing in history. And it's not reality TV isn't real at all. I mean, we know that to some degree already, but, but here's what I mean by it. 
It speaks of things that will fade and will rot, that will one day be forgotten, that are temporary. So when you look at, when you look at Paul, Paul says, it's second, second Corinthians 4, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, meaning it's going, it's like it's fading. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction, he says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. But then he says, as we look not to the things that we can see because those are temporary, but we have to look to the things that are unseen for they are eternal. The spiritual things. And so if, if, we, if we just had this special camera that would allow us to see what actually is really going on around us that we can't see. And what we would find is that we have given birth to the spawn of sin that follows us around. And when we stop paying attention to it, well, it starts pulling on us like a little kid, pulling on your shirt, saying, give me some attention, give me some attention. And if we could only see this little grim reaper that sits upon your lap right now as you sit in this church service, it's pretty terrifying the things that we could see if we only had this special camera that would show us. And eventually, well, the black plague of death catches us. We fall into this pit and it swallows us up. There's been a plague that has been haunting humanity and it's far worse than the black death plague and it's far worse than the coronavirus because what has happened is something has dug up. Something has been dug up from the pits of hell, and it has climbed out, and it's haunting us, and it's chasing us, and eventually we give into it. Our desires take hold of that lure, and it pulls us right into death, but we go running ourselves right in. And as we run into this pit of death, we, we fall, and we continue to fall for eternity. Thousands and thousands of years of this falling and spinning and millions of years. And after those millions of years are up, we will look forward into the eternity that is to come. And it will be but a dot in time for the eternity that is to come. But there's hope. And that's what the Bible keeps teaching us. There's one shot. There is one who has come that will shine light even into the deepest of darkest places. And his light will not be overcome by the darkness. And he will take the dagger of light and plunge it right into the darkness of death and do away with it. Verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, here's what James is telling us here. He's telling us about a recreation that is happening around us. A hope that life can be brought into death. A hope in the midst of the despair. And a truth that will correct every lie. And here's what the hope is. The very words of God. So there's a debate. What is mightier, the pen or the sword? And the answer is that it's the pen. Because what we find is that the pen or words, if they are true, actually bring life. They bring about a new creation. So let me prove this to you. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created. But, but there was darkness. There was void. There was nothingness. It was a lifeless space. And then God spoke 
and said, let there be light. And that was the beginning of life, because in the Bible, life and light are they're, they're together. And so what James is teaching us in these verses is that the father of light is bringing about here a new creation. So humanity, here's what happened. God created humanity, though. We ran back into the, into the void. We ran back into the darkness. We re- ran back into the nothingness, into, into the deepest of darkest places that we could go. We ran straight in. Death pointed to the apple. And took the apple, and he threw it in the pit of death, and we jumped in after it. But God, the Father of lights, he's sending light into the dark places. Death is more powerful than you realize, and there's nothing you can do about it. It will haunt you, track you watch you, and it's like this giant spider that crawls up out of a hole that grabs you and pulls you back down in the hole and spins you up, and you are stuck there forever, and you are not getting out. But when God comes around, death cowers in his presence, climbs back into the hole where it came from. When it says he is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, what that means is the sun and the moon, they're they're moving, they're changing, they're casting shadows. There are bright lights, but they're coming from a spot of intensity. But when God himself comes into the darkness, what happens is his light is so intense everywhere that it touches that the intensity does not allow for there to be one bit of shadow because it's the light touches everything in every single place and so he drives the darkness away he drives death away which means now well death can't hold you it can't have you and here is how this is true by the word of life the awakening word this is the elixir so it says Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So to bring you forth means he's bringing you into the light, which means he's bringing you to life. It simply means this. The Bible makes you alive again. The great claim of the Bible is that these are the very words of God. And these words from God bring about a new creation. When you read and hear and take hold of with faith. Light burst forth. So these things that are sitting at your bedside that are collecting way too much dust, when you open them up, you're opening up life into your life, into your soul. And it's like the the dust that has been settling on your soul gets brushed off and you start becoming alive again. And this is where the questions come in, though. Okay, well, okay, this is God's word, but is it really God's word? I mean, can we really trust this? Hasn't this been handed down to men? And can we really trust that the, these words when we read them in the Bible. Well, I, I've, I've spent plenty of time in sermons giving you proof of why we can trust the Bible. And I'm not going to do that today. What I'm going to do is simply say this. This is God that we're talking about. And if he can speak all of creation into existence, don't you think that he can make sure his words are spoken correctly to us today? If, if he can speak out of an ass in the Old Testament, meaning a donkey, then surely he can make sure that us, being made in his image, can carry his words into our heart, be made alive again, and carry these words to other people. 
You know, humanity is the crown of God's creation. And originally, the job of humanity was to take Eden and expand it over all the earth. Now, listen, we've run away from Eden. But now Eden, the life of Eden, has come back in his word. And now us, being the crown of his creation, we have this responsibility to take the words, take the Bible, and bring it over all the earth. And that is how we now bring Eden to cover all the earth again. So it's time for you to make a decision. Are you going to allow yourself to hope? And if you are, why wouldn't you run to the greatest hope? The word. That's the claim. There's nothing that's going to give you more hope than this. And it has the the power to bring life into this dead world. Now, if you skip forward to verse 21, you know what it says about the word? It says it is the implanted word. Now, this is a direct contrast with the lure that is cast into the desires that you have. And so instead of being impregnated by the spawn of Satan, you become impregnated by the word of life. And when that happens, a new birth happens. It actually says in verse 21 that the implanted word is able to save your soul. So the reversal has happened. You've been pulled up out of the pit. You've been on this train that is heading right into the pits of hell, but it's been knocked off the tracks. And you've been carrying around this little spawn, this little sin in your life. And what the word does is it throws it upon the ground and changes you and you go and have new life in him. This is what John 3, in John 3 it's called the rebirth. So here's how the story goes. Jesus meets, well, this guy Nicodemus. He comes and tracks Jesus down. He's, he's a religious ruler, a religious elite. He, I mean, he's a good guy, but he goes to Jesus in the middle of the night because, well, the religious leaders at the time don't think much of Jesus. So he comes and finds him, and he says, Hey, Jesus, we really know that your words have to be coming from God because we don't know how you could be doing these things, but we would never tell anybody that. And before he could really ask Jesus a question, Jesus says, Hey, Nick, in order for you to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how could you be born again? How could you re-enter your your mother's womb? And Jesus says, you must be born of the water and the spirit. Now, I never saw this before. I never noticed it before. And I've never read anybody that noticed it. I'm sure somebody's noticed it before. But this is amazing what Jesus has just done here. So all the way back at the creation story, Before God spoke, let there be light, the Spirit of God was doing something, hovering like like a hummingbird type thing over the face of the waters. And so you see this Spirit of God hovering over the waters, almost it's like it's creating this energy that when God speaks into this energy, it's like this energy is ready to receive something. And as soon as the ener- this energy receives something, it sparks life. And so God says, let there be life, or let there be light, and life bursts forth into the world. Now, when Jesus says you must be born of the water and spirit, what he's saying is you have the same power that was there at creation that brought about life into the world, well, you have to be born again into that. Meaning, the spirit of God, because, well, Jesus is called the word. This is a very abstract thought, but John 1, Jesus is called the Word. So let me just make this as concrete as I possibly can. Before you become a Christian, the Spirit of God is at work, hovering over the waters of your soul. 
making you groan for something that you don't yet have. A rescuer. Life. Making you become very aware that this is not the life that you are meant for. That you have sin in your life, that this little spawn, this little grim reaper that you've been carrying around, it's time to stomp on him. And you start feeling all these things because, well, the Spirit of God is doing work in your soul, and then you hear it. The words of life. The words about Jesus. I mean, he's the Word made flesh, meaning he himself is the Word that has come to bring life into you. And you hear it. And as soon as you hear it, life bursts forth into your soul. And it's like your dead, stony heart starts cracking. And light starts trying to burst through until the cracks become big enough. And then, bam, life bursts forth in you. James says that Jesus himself, it's Jesus himself that is the good and perfect gift. So the Spirit is doing work in the egg of your soul, preparing you for the implanted word which brings life into your life. That you're coming alive story. And once you are alive, God will not lose you again. It says that we are the first fruits of his creation. Now this word, first fruits, if you look through the Bible, here's what it means. The first bit of anything that God's people get, they set it aside for God. The first 10% of the crops, this is for God. This is going to be used for the poor. The first, any little bit of anything that you get in your life, you set it aside and you say that's for God. But this says, we are God's first fruits. That means we belong to him. And if we belong to him, that means death has no hold on us anymore because we are his and he is life. So your evil desires are no match for the God of creation. Your sins are but a fly that God flicks away. And death is simply something he speaks light into and the darkness runs and cowers away. And while it is an easy thing for God to do away with death, it will cost him much. Because he had to deal with death, and we are falling into the pit of it. And in order for him to get us, he's got to go down into it. And so we have fallen for the trick, we have fallen for the lie, the apple that we desired so badly gets thrown right into the pit of death, into the pit of hell, and, and we jump in after it. And he sees us do it, and he jumps in after us, and he tucks in, and he goes follows us down into death and he grabs hold of us as we're falling and as we hit the bottom the deepest darkest dungeon into death and we fall he braces us and catches us but then we stand up and it's there that death looks upon us and he takes out his dagger that is going to take our soul and before he does jesus steps in and he's sliced in our place. And he hits the ground dead. This is what the cross is about. And death is very delighted in itself. Thinks it is one. Only the Father in heaven 
raises his son, the earth starts quaking there down in death. It's like the spirit of God is doing work again. And then Jesus is raised to new life. He's risen in death and darkness. Flee from him and he's risen and he takes us with him. And now he's seated on his throne in heaven and he waits there until the day that he will return the word of life and not just do a new creation in us, but all of this, all of the cosmos, all of all things will all be made new into a whole new creation. And until that day, you will continue to groan for it. But you have something. You have the word of God. You have the word of life. And so, when you're feeling a bit dead inside, or you're struggling, or you just can't seem to stop sinning over and over and over again, what do you do? Well, you open up the Bible. And you dust it off because it's life itself. And you start reading. And as you're reading, if nothing's happening, if you're like, I don't see what I'm supposed to be happening in my life. Nothing's happening in my heart. Nothing's happening in my soul. Do you know what you got to do in that moment? you got to pray for the Spirit of God to hover over the face of the waters of your soul and prepare you to hear His Word. And then, after you've prayed that prayer, you read. And still, if nothing happens, you keep praying. And still, if nothing happens, you just get really stubborn and you just keep praying and you keep praying and you keep praying because sometimes that's what happens in this life. But at some point, again, the Spirit of God does the work. And the Word of God is read, spoken, and life bursts forth. And you're made new. You're transformed. Or you come alive for the first time. That is what the Word of God will do. So we've got to dust off our Bibles. All right, let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you have not left us here alone, but you have sent your word, which is life. It is mightier than the sword of death. It is mightier than the tricks that we fall into. And so we pray that your word, which is truth, would make us alive now. That we would cling to our Bibles as if It is the only thing that is rescuing us from death. God, help us. Stir in us. Send your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.